All right, as our kids are making their way out, and if you want to grab your Bibles, you're going to need them today. I didn't put our main passage up on the screen, and so you're going to need to turn to it today. Amen. God is good. Amen? Yeah, that's right, Marv. He is. <laughs> Today is our annual ministry Sunday that we call it. And um, I have a sermon that I'm going to share with you here called Love God and Love Others. And we're going to look at two different stories from the life of Jesus that teach the same truth but actually solicit different responses. So Jesus basically teaches the same thing, but two different reactions to it. And so um, if you have your own Bible, you can use that. Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 10. Uh, If you're going to use the Bibles there in the pew in front of you, you can just uh, look at those page numbers and you can turn to those. And we're going to get there in just a moment. Um, For those of you that are members and partners with us in your mailboxes in the back, you should have gotten your annual ministry sheet. And so I'm going to encourage you to take that over these next couple weeks and uh, to really look through it and to begin to see where God has you and where God wants to put you in the body in this next year. This is something, uh, if you're not a member or partner here at Restoration Church, we'd encourage you to to do that. As a member, uh, you're just, you feel like this is where God's called you. This is where you attend services. This is the body he wants you to be a part of. Uh, Partners actually fill out an application. They want to take a step farther. Uh, They want to make a commitment to the body. Maybe in the same way that you take a marriage vow, you enter into a covenant together with a group of people and uh, You commit to serve with them and to give with them and to uh, make yourself available to them. And so that level is the level of partnership. And so every year we put out these sheets and allow you to kind of look at your life and where God has you in this season and where he wants you to serve in the body. Because we believe two things. One, we believe that God puts all of us in a body for a reason. Okay, and I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures here in a minute for that. But we also believe that every season of our lives is a little different. And sometimes when you got young kids or sometimes when your job changes or sometimes, you know, maybe you just uh, are stressed by an extra added burden in your life. And so there's a season of your life where you, you maybe can't serve as you, you did the last year. And so we recognize that. So we give you an opportunity every year to kind of evaluate what God's saying to you, where you are in life, what he maybe wants to stretch you in. Um, You know, God doesn't always ask us to sign up for a ministry that makes us feel good. Sometimes he puts us in a place that's going to stretch us because he knows that he wants to prepare us for something that's coming. And so for whatever reason, we want to make that available to you. You don't sign up for ministry and then you're in it until Jesus shows up. Um, We give you the chance every year to kind of evaluate that and uh, not saying that, you know, if something happens in the middle of the year, we do make allowance for you to be able to step aside when you need to. Um, But we want to make it easier for everyone to be a part of that. And so the only thing that I believe we forgot on this list is child check-in. So if you want to serve in child check-in, just mark that on the sheet underneath either the Wednesday night or the Sunday true fire. And uh, if you want to be a part of that, otherwise get those back to us by June 16th. And then we start putting them together for the fall. And uh, our ministry year starts in August and runs through July. And so that's the, the amount of commitment that you're making. Even if you're currently in a ministry and you want to keep doing it, please mark that. Because again, uh, we assume we just start over and give everyone a chance to reevaluate and decide where they want to be. And uh, once we go through those, we'll get um, information back to you. Sometimes there's an application to fill out for a ministry or a background check that needs to be done. And so uh, we'll make sure to get that to you sometime over these summer months. And so 
For those of you that maybe weren't aware or didn't believe me, um, this is what the, the scripture says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, our bodies, physical bodies, the apostle Paul is saying, have many parts and God has put each part just where he wants it. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. So in the same way that God put our physical bodies together and put each part where he wants it, he does the same spiritually. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying. So you may think that you chose Restoration Church, but God brought you here. And if you chose it because you like it or for some other reason, um, God was probably behind that too. And so he brought you here. He's got a purpose for you. Ephesians 4.16, he makes the whole body, this time now talking about the spiritual body, not the physical one, fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy, growing, and full of love. And sometimes we, we like to step back from our church or a church and we want to critique or complain that the church isn't what it needs to be and we need to be careful and make sure that we're actually doing our part. Because if the church isn't healthy, growing, and full of love, it may be on me, not on others. I know it's easier for us to make it on others instead of on ourselves, but the scripture actually says, make sure you're doing it. And so the, the ministries that you sign up for, I recognize that this stuff is more cultural than biblical. Okay. And that doesn't mean it's not biblical or it's a sin. It just means that church, the way we do it today is a cultural thing. It's not based on the scripture. The day we meet, the programs we have, the room we are in, none of that is actually in the Bible, do this, do this, do this. Okay, it's cultural. This is the agreed upon cultural structure of our church. And we should evaluate it from time to time because sometimes we, we do things in a Christ, Christian culture, but we're not actually impacting our culture culture. And we don't want to change what we're doing to reach our culture culture because we're comfortable with our Christian culture. And one of the things that we as a church have really done over the last several years is make sure we're not falling into that trap of just doing what we want to do and not reaching and being effective to our culture. Because it's easy for us to sit in this room and say, well, those people just aren't interested in spiritual things. But... Jesus said that our mission is to seek and save the lost, not sit in a room and hope they show up. And there's a lot of us that really spend most of our time, you know, waiting for them to come and not really seeking and saving the lost. The overwhelming majority of our testimonies is what God has done for us and not what God has done through us. And we want to change that. That's not anyone's fault, maybe more than mine. I've been the pastor of this church for 20 years, and it's hard after 20 years to think, man, maybe I've not been doing it right all this time, and yet I'm willing to change it, and there are seasons. There was a season that our American culture was a Christian culture. The idea of going to church was something people did. The idea of going to a special event at a church, something people did. That culture no longer exists. And we could sit here and long for the good old days to come back and pray for some revival, or we could go out and be the revival. Amen, that's great. Because that's what we're called to do. That's what we're trying to do. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today, because... You know, when it comes to change, how many of you know change is hard? I mean, babies in dirty diapers like change, but we don't like change. 
okay? We really don't like it. I hate change. I like things to be the same the way they were because change is hard for me. And every time Pastor John says there's this new app or this new thing we need to try, I'm like, blah, because I don't like change. But millennials thrive on change. I mean, change everything, change all the time. And somewhere in there, I'm sure there's a balance. But we have to make sure we're changing what we do to match what's happening out there so we can reach them. We never have and we never will compromise biblical truth, ever. But we will change anything that's not necessarily a biblical truth to seek and save that which is lost. That's what we're trying to be about. You know, the old saying is, it's a form of insanity to continue to do what you've always done and expect a different result. And I, I understand that phrase, but then it sometimes it says, you know, in the scripture, it says you have to persevere in these things so that you will reap a harvest. And so how do we know what things to persevere in and how do we know what things are insanity? And that's why we have these conversations and study the scripture, because we persevere in the scriptural things and we change the cultural things. And that's how we work that out. Over the last several years, a scripture that we've shared with you from Jeremiah chapter 29. I'll move from Isaiah to Jeremiah now. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. Maybe on graduation Sunday, you're familiar with verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you hope and, and not to destroy you. To bring you back from captivity. Okay, That's verse 11. But a few verses before in verse number 7, the people of Israel are in captivity captivity and they're thinking we don't really like Babylon they're they were in captivity here they brought us from our land they overtook through us and and they brought us here and we're just gonna wait till Jesus comes <laughs> well you know the Messiah we're gonna wait for the Messiah to come and set us free and that's what and the Lord says to them no 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 work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile pray to the Lord for it for its welfare will determine your welfare Now, if he commanded his people in captivity to do it, you and I who live in the city of Huron probably should do it too. Instead of just doing what's best for us, what's best for our city? And that's the thing that God put in our heart, working for the good of our city, wanting to bless our city, working for their welfare because our welfare is tied to it. Physically and spiritually. And so the idea of today that we're going to wrestle with is, are we on the right track with that? Does that even make sense? And so we're going to look at these two stories from the life of Jesus again, and they are the idea of what's the most important thing. What's the thing that matters most? And that's what Jesus is wrestling with. And the first one, in Mark chapter 12, the context of this is that the religious leaders the, of, the, of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're upset with Jesus right here. And the reason they're upset is because he told a story. And in that story, he talks about this, this owner of a vineyard who leased it to people. And the people he leased it to didn't take good care of it. It's not that they didn't take good care of it like they didn't water it and grow a crop, meaning they didn't do it the way he wanted it done. And so he would send people to them, to like prophets, and he would send people to them to try to get to correct them. And what would happen was they would beat them up. They would abuse them. They would mistreat them. And then he said, finally, well, I'll send them my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And you know what they did to his son? 
They killed him. And so Jesus is telling this story and the Pharisees and the Sadducees realize he's talking about us. And they don't like him because he's putting them in a bad light. Why would he do this? Jesus is putting them in a bad light. So they start asking him questions to try to trap him because if they can trap him, they can get him put in prison, they can kill him, they can do whatever they want. So, hey, is it right to pay taxes? That was question one. Well, what about the resurrection? Suppose this man has, is married, they don't have kids, and he dies, and then his brother then has to be obligated to marry the wife and try to have children for the son. He dies, and the next one, and they all die. Who's, who's she going to be in the resurrection? And the stupid thing is, the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. But they're asking Jesus this question about the resurrection. Wow. And then... Jesus answers that one well too. And then we come to verse 28. Okay, verse 28, Matthew chapter 12. One of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to this debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important commandment? Now, from the context, we don't think that this man is trying to trap Jesus. We think he's, he's seeing all this and he's really genuinely asking Jesus this question. He seems to be culturally and, uh, you know, the way the, the structure of the, the Greek is, it seems like this man really wants the answer. He's asking Jesus, hey, when you boil this thing down, what's most important? What do we do? How do I please God? I mean, because remember, he's a teacher of the law. This is his job to impart the law to people and so he wants to do it better. At least that's what we're assuming is happening here in this passage. Then verse 29. So Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Verse 31. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, technically, this isn't a commandment. This is the words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, when he's rehashing to them the history of Israel. This becomes what is called the Shema in, he in Greek, in Hebrew, in in Jewish culture, that's what I'm looking for. In Jewish culture, it's the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that Jewish people would pray every single morning and every single night. They repeated this prayer. This is what they repeated. That the Lord your God is one. That you should love the Lord your God. And it, I mean, it goes on and it talks about talking about his ways as you get up and as you lie down. It's longer than that. But the first part of the prayer is this verse. Now, Mark adds the word mind to the Shema. Because the Shema is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And we don't understand why Mark adds the word mind. Could be the audience that he's speaking to is not a Jewish audience he's writing this letter to. And so he adds the word mind for clarification for them in some way because maybe soul doesn't cover it for that, that culture. And so he's trying to be more cultural. But it doesn't change the meaning. The meaning is still the same. You should love God with the totality of your being. That's the most important thing. And the word love, if you know the, the Greek language, if you've been in church at all, you understand that word love is the Greek word agape. 
And agape does not mean feeling. It does not mean affection. Don't have affection for God. Now, you can have affection for God, and you should, but that's not what agape is. That's phileo. That's I feel something towards God. Eros is the word. It's a sexual type of love. Okay? There's a Greek word that is an action word. Love God. Act in love towards God. Act in God's best interest. And what does that look like? What does it look like for us to love God with our total being? Obedience, full submission, trust. I mean, I don't, I don't swear, I don't drink, I don't watch dirty movies. What about worry? Is worry a problem? I mean, we look at worry as like, you know, just a weakness that maybe, you know, I shouldn't worry. Jesus commands us not to worry. Jesus equates worry with paganism. If you worry and you don't take that thought captive and bring it to the cross, that's, it's a sin. Ouch. I mean, remember when his disciples woke him up on the boat and said, we're going to drown. And he rebuked them for not having faith. For worrying? Maybe the reason that our culture is going to hell in a handbasket isn't so much that there's all of this sin in the world. Maybe our worry and lack of trust in God plays a role in that more. Maybe the name of God is being profaned among the Gentiles, not because of homosexuality or abortion or, or murder or all of these other rampant things. Maybe it's just the good old-fashioned worry in our lives and our reaction to situations. I don't know. So what does it look like to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? I don't know. But before we really look at that, Jesus adds this next commandment. This commandment is not, again, necessarily one of the Ten Commandments, but it is a commandment. All throughout the book of Leviticus, this is repeated, to love your neighbor who is like yourself. I know we translate it, love your neighbor as yourself, but it's literally love your neighbor who is like yourself. This was a common part of Jewish culture. This was a phrase that they used all the time. In other words, that guy is a human just like you. He's flawed just like you. He's imperfect just like you. Maybe not in the exact same way. Maybe his weakness is a little different than yours, but you should love him just like you love yourself or because he is like yourself. And these are tied together often, our love for God and our love for others. In fact, tied together so much so in the book of Galatians that the apostle Paul in Galatians says that the entire law is summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't mean that he doesn't think that we should love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but sometimes we can think we're loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength because we attend church and because we put money in the offering and because we do all, we read our Bible and we pray, but we mistreat human beings. We slander, we gossip, we do all of this evil towards each other, we don't correct things, and we think we're in right relationship with God, but the proof of it would be how we treat others. And Paul recognizes that. He tells the Galatians, stop biting and devouring each other or you're going to destroy each other. What are you doing? The whole law is summed up by how you treat each other. So verse 32, back to Mark chapter 12. We've got to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love our neighbors after ourselves. The teacher of the religious law replies, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying there is only one God and no other. 
And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. And he doesn't stop. He adds this. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Now you gotta understand, burnt offerings and sacrifices aren't like the stuff I just described. It's not like we go to church and we, you know, we are in a ministry, we give in the offering, we pray, we read our Bible. These were required to be in right standing with God. These were not just Christian duty things. These were things that you had to do in the Old Testament to actually be right with God. And the guy is saying how you relate to God and how you relate to people is actually more important than all of those things. So how much more in the new covenant, we're not saying that these other things aren't important. It's just that the, it's easy to make these more important than what's really most important. And what's most important is how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And then verse 34, Jesus' response Realizing how much the man understood. Jesus is like, this guy gets it. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. I had to study this this week because this puzzles me. Why wasn't he in the kingdom of God? And it seems to be that Jesus is saying, you understand it, but repentance is required. It's not enough that you can tell me what's true. You have to live what's true. That's the proof of it. It's not that we're saved by our actions, but our actions prove what we believe. We can no longer say, I love God and not love people I can see because I'm a liar. That's what 1 John says. And we want to do that. We want to say, well, I love God. God knows my heart. You're right. He does know your heart. And he says, now look at your actions. Your actions prove what's in your heart. I want you to change. I don't want to give you anger. I want to give you grace. Don't make excuses for your behavior. Humble yourself before me. Jesus, recognizing that the guy got it, says, now put it into practice. You do it, and then you'll enter the kingdom. You're not far. So over in Luke chapter 10. Okay, same kind of teaching. But let me give you the context here. Again, they're trying to trap Jesus with questions in Luke chapter 10. Asking some of the same ones, trying to trap him. But this time, the question about the, what's the greatest commandment is a trap. We know this guy is not asking it because he wants a right answer. He's trying to trap Jesus. So, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 there. One day... An expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Interesting. I mean, the other guy said, what's the greatest commandment? This guy's asking, what do I do to inherit eternal life? The other guy, what do I do to please God? What's the greatest commandment? This guy, how do I get eternal life? How do I please God? How do I get something? See the motivation right off the bat? How do I get something? And Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? By the way, Jesus was a master of answering a question with a question. We should be too. We often think we have to give people answers. Jesus didn't give people a lot of answers. He gave them a lot of questions. And so when people ask you a question, you could ask them a question back. It's totally appropriate 
Jesus did it. So what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And he adds again, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the the teacher of the law answering, right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. Same response from Jesus. This is true. You do this and you will inherit eternal life. You have to do it. It's not just understand it. You do it. You put it into practice and you're actually proving your faith by what you do. The man gives the right answer. I mean, this is really good almost because then we look at verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. So again, he's looking for what I can get. Now he's trying to justify his actions. So he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? That's a good question. And when you put these two parables, these two stories side by side, they're not parables, they're real life events. So they're, you put them side by side. And you look at the guy who is close to the kingdom. And then you read this one and you find a guy who's looking for a loophole. How do I still do what I want to do and yet get into heaven? So verse 30, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a road that was um, notorious for robbers, and he's attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, I love that word, by chance, oh, what luck, a priest came along. A priest, you know, the, the, the pastoral staff, or if you really believe the New Testament, we're the priesthood of believers, so it's all believers. So a good, strong, evangelical Christian happened to come by right as this man was in the ditch. Hallelujah. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Verse 32, a temple assistant or a Levite in your translation. I mean, these weren't the priests now. These were the tribe of Levi who assisted at the temple. Walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. I mean, maybe they were late for their temple worship. I mean, we, won't, we don't want to be too hard on these guys. Maybe they were late for church. They didn't have time to stop because, you know, we got to get to church on time. And those sacrifices are more important. And other people depend on the priest being there. So he's got to get there. And you and I kind of do that same thing where we tend to rationalize whether that person who's in need, if whether or not we should help them. I mean, we see people in need all the time. But we wonder, you know, did they get in that mess themselves? If I help them, maybe I should give them tough love. And really, sometimes tough love is a cover up for selfishness. I really don't want to get involved. I really, you know, they made their mess. Why should I give my hard-earned money to get them out of a mess that they made? And wanting to justify ourselves, we look for those same loopholes. It's really quiet here today. You're processing this great story by Jesus. Verse 33, 
Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins or two denarii. A denarius is equivalent to a laborer's full wage, a day's wage. So he gives the innkeeper two days wage and says, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Uh, could you turn off the television? Uh, make sure he doesn't order any movies. Could you turn off room service? Could you take the mini bar out? I mean, if his bill runs higher, I mean, put some parameters on this thing. It's interesting that Jesus chose the Samaritan. If you don't know about the Samaritans, these are the people that were left in, Jerusalem, or in the land of Israel during the captivity, and they intermarried with people who were not Jewish, which under the Old Testament was huge no-no. Because not only did we not mix culturally, but we were not to mix religiously or with pagans because they would lead them astray. This was an absolute no-no. These people were despised. These people were sinners, basically. The Jews were like, they're, we're con they're contaminated. We don't want anything to do with them. And Jesus makes them the hero of the story. For us, it's the people who, don't go, who go to church, but they don't live it out right. You know, the people who haven't put it together like you and I have. I mean, they're still living with their boyfriend. They're still doing, I mean, remember the Samaritan woman? I mean, she had how many husbands and she was living with a guy that, she's a Samaritan. Two, two, one chapter earlier, the disciples are, are gathered around and the Samaritans reject Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. And you know what they want to do? Let's call down fire on them. And Jesus is like, dude, what is wrong with you? Do you even know who I am? I'm not here to call down fire on people. It's not an accident that Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of this story. He has just irritated everyone, including his disciples who are thinking about that incident with the fire right now. <clears throat> and then Jesus asked this question. Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits. And the man replied, <clears throat> the one who showed mercy. <laughs> That's what he did. <laughs> I mean, he already knows that he's been like, Ugh. the one who showed him mercy. Mercy is another word for compassion, by the way. In the Greek, mercy, compassion, translated different ways in different contexts. The one who showed him compassion. Now Jesus said, yeah, Go and do the same. Go and do the same for every other human being that you see in need. See, compassion in our lives doesn't develop in a worship service. It doesn't develop in our prayer time. It doesn't develop at an altar, you know, when we have compassionate people come and lay their hands on us and impart compassion to us. Do you know where compassion develops? When we see a person in need and we don't pass by on the other side, we actually get involved and we meet the need. That's where compassion develops. Now, <clears throat> compassion is placed in us by the grace of God at salvation, but it doesn't grow and develop in a Bible study. 
It grows and develops as you and I rub shoulders with people in need. And Jesus is telling this story about a marginal Christian who is actually doing a better job at pleasing God, honoring God, understands the kingdom of God far better than the people who are going to church every Sunday, paying their tithe, going through the Bible every year, doing all of the religious stuff. That marginal Christian gets it better. That's not an excuse to live however. It's not an excuse to say, well, you know, see, it doesn't matter what I do with my life. No, it's just a, it's a warning to those of us who think we've got it all together that we need to start rubbing shoulders with people that are in need. It's a warning that there's a danger for the church to start looking at our city from the 30,000 foot view. We like to sit up here and look down at our city and say, what, what does our city need? Okay, well, let's do something that we think our city needs. Instead of actually walking the streets of our city, sitting at the table with the leaders of our city or the people in our city, really finding out what we can do to actually benefit them, not hoping that it benefits us. That's what Jesus is trying to talk about. There's a quote by a man by the name of Steve Donaldson. Steve Donaldson is a member of a group in Southern California. California? Can anything good come from California? I mean, it's almost like, what? But in the Southern California district of the Assemblies of God, a movement has begun called City Serve. And when I, I saw a book called City Serve a few months ago, and I'm like, I need to read that book. That sounds like what I feel like God's doing in my heart. And, what, and so I want to find out. Lo and behold, they have been doing this for years where their churches are actually trying to serve their cities the way Jesus intended and raise the water level of the city to make the lives of people better in the city, to actually go after poverty, to go actually go after the things, not to just go after policies when it was like abortion and homosexuality in the Bible in schools, but to actually do things that make a difference in the lives of people. Because they understand people are blinded by the God of this age. And the way to help remove those blinders is kindness and goodness and grace. And when you get the blinders off of them, when you start serving them, when you start loving them, they can start being open to the gospel. But if we want to preach from the 30,000 foot view, it's going to be a little harder. And we'll be justified that they're rejecting the gospel. People are rejecting the gospel today. Maybe they need to see it up close and personal. The same way that Jesus did. But Steve says this. Current poverty rates in rural America exceed the poverty rates in urban communities. There are significantly fewer social services available to address these needs according to the National Advisory Committee on Rural Health and Human Services. Persistent poverty counties have poverty rates of 20% or higher. And 88% of persistent poverty counties are rural. That's us. The U.S. Department of Agriculture notes that one in four children in rural America lives in poverty. That's just not okay. And rural areas have more single guardian households than urban areas. 
People in rural areas are also struggling with unemployment, substance abuse, and domestic abuse. According to one study, a rural teen is more likely to misuse drugs and alcohol than an urban teen. Please understand, the cities are not our problem. The small towns are our problem. Pew Research Center declared drug abuse to be the leading problem in rural America. As Christians, we know that statistics aren't the full picture, but we must ask ourselves, if the church vanished from these small towns, would anyone notice? Instead of asking, how big is your church? We should ask, how is your church impacting its community? Why do we want to plant churches in small towns? Bingo. Why do we want to sit at the table with community leaders and ask them what the needs of our city is? Why am I excited that our city thinks one of the greatest needs of our city that's going to raise the water level of our city is improving the downtown area? And we had just voted to, to move and try to do something in that exact same. Why, why does that excite me? Because it feels like God's putting it together. It feels like he's saying, hey, I actually want you to do something for the city. It's easy. Hey, oh, let's just have a food pantry. Let's just write a, a check to the Salvation Army. Let's just do, you know, what we can do. I'm no longer content with poverty porn. You know what poverty porn is? Poverty porn is where you and I visit the reservations or we visit Honduras or we visit Myanmar or Africa and we take pictures of ourselves with starving children on the other side of the world and we, we do things to help them. And can I tell you that one week in that place actually does more for you than it does for them. But missionaries know they need to let you come because they need to do something in you. And so we go there and we have these pictures on our fridge of these, these kids in another country that we've never met. We're supporting them. And it makes us feel good and there's nothing wrong with that. But in the meantime, you and I are walking by on the other side of the street while people are in the ditch. And we can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I don't want to just preach the gospel well. I want to live it well. Some of you might think, well, you know, is this really the gospel? Yeah, Luke chapter 14, verse 13. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Jesus. When's the last time that's who you invited to your home? When's the last time I invited them to my home? Do we even know them? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, this actually comes from Psalm 112. Paul says, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 16, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? The poor and needy, that's what it means to know him. James chapter 3, or James chapter 2. Listen, brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of to whom, him to whom you belong? 
If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Matthew chapter 19. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Galatians chapter 2. They asked, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius stared at this angel in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to God. Do you, it's easy for us to start majoring in minors. And really, what matters is us reaching the poor, the hurting, the broken, the blind, the destitute, the ones that aren't going to tithe, the ones that aren't going to benefit us, the ones that aren't going to raise our water level, but we're going to raise theirs. That's who he's called us to reach. How do we do it? Because we don't have enough money to even take care of our building. Well, maybe we should have less building and start taking care of the, the real church, people. Maybe we should gut this thing and actually use this building in a way that benefits the city every other day of the week and just meet here on Sunday. Maybe. Maybe we should move downtown since all the other churches are moving out. Maybe we should move down there because guess what? People live down there and they don't have cars. But they're not people that are going to pad our bank account. But they're the people that the kingdom of heaven was made for. Maybe God's saying... All along, that's what I wanted you to do. And he's trying to gently prod us along. And here's the thing. I'm scared out of my wits. I don't have any idea how any of this could happen. All I know is this is what God's putting in my heart. And if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it. I would rather fail trying to obey the scripture than to continue to live in an illusion. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and I was in prison and you did not look after me. And they're like, when did we ever see you? He's like, anytime you saw anyone, you saw me. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. See, I don't know what this is going to look like. And we're still praying through it and talking through it and trying to figure out what God's asking us to do. But here's what I think he's asking us to do. Care about the people no one else cares about. Stop saying, stop walking by on the other side of the road and looking at the ditch and saying, you know, they knew better. They used to attend church. I don't understand. I did it. I put, I put this together. So I don't understand why they put it together. I'm not going to give them money. You know, I heard it all my life. When you go into a big city, don't give, don't give the homeless person money because they'll just buy alcohol with it. You're not helping them. Well, maybe I should do something to help them. I mean, how do you walk by it every day and get your heart callous towards it? Maybe I should go buy them food then and bring it to them. Oh, but some of them are just panhandles. You get taken advantage of. Here's the thing. We are not going to help people without being taken advantage of. If you are hoping that everyone we help is not going to take advantage of us, you might as well quit. Just stay home, study the Bible for yourself, and watch church on TV. Because in the real world, we're going to get used, we're going to get abused, we're going to get mistreated, but we're going to do it for the kingdom. 
We're going to do it for the kingdom. No, we're not going to be frivolous and ridiculous. We're going to do our best to be wise with resources, but we're not going to be tight with resources when it comes to serving other people. We're trying to get tight with resources in ways that just serve us and not serve the people that we're called to reach. The last passage that I want to share with you today, I already alluded to it earlier in Isaiah chapter 58, but I want you to see it because the people of God are fasting. I don't want you to read it yet. The people of God are fasting. You know, they're going through their religious duties and they're like, God, you're not, you're not seeing us. I mean, we're fasting, we're praying, we're doing all these things, but it's like, you're, it's like you've turned a deaf ear to us. You know, it's not, we're not getting what we want, what we need. And he says to them, here's the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Not just Christians in other countries who are wrongly imprisoned. Anyone who's been wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives who need your help. You know, see them coming down the duck in the aisle when they're walking down the aisle towards you at Coborns and you're like, oh, no, there's that guy again. Check the caller ID. Oh, what do they want again? Are they ever going to get their life straightened out? Not if you don't step in. I've all, but you don't understand, Pastor. I've stepped in a hundred times. Seventy times seven. You got a ways to go. Trust me. I know. I've got relatives too. I am a relative too. I'm probably one of those relatives that people see my caller ID and they don't answer. And by the way, you are too. <laughs> I know we don't think we are, but we are that, because we're people. Then, looks like this. Then your salvation will come like the dawn. When you actually start doing the kingdom outside the walls of the building, then your salvation will come like the dawn. Your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call and the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. Oh, our world is so dark. Then let's start shining like bright noon light. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry, restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. You will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. I kind of want to be known like that. And here's the thing. Count the cost because that's a huge undertaking. It'd be way easier to just try to figure out how to hunker down here till Jesus comes and, you know, just try to witness to a few people in my life and maybe invite a person or two to church with me and, you know, just try to keep on keeping on till Jesus comes. I don't know. I want the light of the city of Huron to shine so bright. 
Why do we do Royal Family Kids Camp? Why do we minister to kids that are broken? Why do we let them mistreat us all week long and don't discipline them the way we should? Because they don't even know how to process what's happened to them. Their, their brains can't even process what's going on. And so we, we understand what's happening. And some of us have a lot of empathy and compassion for them. It's just the adults we don't have the same empathy and compassion for. We need it. When James told the church, you don't get what you need because you don't ask God. Or when you ask him, you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on yourself. Most of our prayer requests are, heal me, do this for me, 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 me. And again, the scripture says, bring your request to God, cast your anxiety on him. I, I know, it does, and I'm going to keep doing it for me. But maybe my healing is attached to me saying, God, do this in them. Laying hands on them. When's the last time you laid hands on a coworker? The last time you laid hands on someone at the store? The last time you laid and said, God, come, minister to them right now. Maybe our healing is attached to that. When's the last time you gave someone money as they stood there and told you the story of how everything has fallen apart in their family and you took 20 or $100 out of your wallet and said, here. And you didn't sit there and, and judge them and think, well, you know, if you would follow Dave Ramsey, you wouldn't be in that situation. I mean, maybe our healing is attached to that. This isn't about, you know, if I give, then I'm going to get something from God. This is about understanding the heart of God. And this is how he treated us. Everything we're thinking about that other person, God could have totally been justified thinking about us. But he didn't. He demonstrated love for us. And this is the kind of church that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. Just yesterday, I had a guy talk to me about our church and the changes. And he looked at me and he said, so what's the vision? And I found how easy it was for this to just come out. And I keep articulating it. But here's the thing. I'm not far from the kingdom because I understand it. But if I want to enter the kingdom, I really got to start doing it. And as a church, we're not far from the kingdom. We're getting it. We understand it. But until we actually start doing it, we're not entering the kingdom. So we're going to keep pulling up chairs to the table with city leaders and committees that meet throughout the city and our superintendent and our school board. And we're going to keep finding ways that we can help them and serve them and raise the water level for people in our community so that when we preach the gospel, they're able to hear it. So that when we preach the gospel, they realize we're not in it for just what's for us. We're in it for them because we've already demonstrated it. I heard a story this week about a church in Oklahoma, large church, Assembly of God Church, a pastor, was having lunch with his staff, and the mayor of his city just happened to be in the room. <clears throat> and when the lunch was over, the mayor asked if he could visit with him. <clears throat> and he said, sure. And the mayor <clears throat> went on to tell him that his church didn't have a good reputation in the community. Of course, the pastor is shocked. I don't understand. You know, we... We serve the community. We do all these things for the community. And <clears throat> the mayor said, yeah, you do. You do things for us, but you really never do things with us. 
You're the largest church, the largest organization in our city. And we feel like you're not a part of us. See, it's not about compromising biblical truth. I know this pastor. I know his doctrine because he shifted at that moment. And he realized we need to be doing stuff with them, not just for them. They haven't compromised their biblical integrity at all. But you know what they have seen? An influx of souls. And a city who now recognizes they're in it with us. That's the call that we're asking for. So as you fill out this ministry form, it's not just about, you know, what what I can do. Because here's the thing. You know, people in our church all the time say, oh, how do we reach young families? We really want to reach young families. Pastor, we should reach young families. But yeah, I don't, I don't really want to work in the nursery. I mean, I, I don't want to work in children's ministry. That's not my calling. But we, we should reach young families. Imposible. They have children. Well, but when I was their age, I worked in the nursery. I served my children. Somewhere along the line, we've messed this up. We think that once our children are out of the house, we, once we have matured in faith, then we need to be in more worship services. I mean, I can't be in the nursery twice a month because then I'll miss the worship service, and I need the worship service. Really? You still need milk and not solid food. Because how do we reach young families if we're not willing to give them what they need? Because some of them need to be in the worship service. So as you read through this sheet, I pray that you're going to read through it and ask the Holy Spirit, what do I need to do? Not just to minister in the building, but now we need to start saying, what do we need to do to minister outside the building? And maybe some of the things that we need to do outside the building mean we need to cross off some things in the building so that we can do what needs to be done outside the building. We need new eyes. We need fresh eyes. We need fresh hearts. We need to start engaging people in conversations. And a lot of people will say, well, Pastor Tom, this is just like the business format. All you've done, this whole vision thing, you just bring business principles into the church. That's an argument that people use these days. But can I ask you, uh, if you understand the God of structure that we serve, who didn't just one day wake up and thought, well, maybe I'm going to create light today. I think today would be a good day to create light. He knew what he was doing from the beginning. And he created order in creation all the way through. And then he gave Moses a tabernacle on the mountain. And he said, be careful to do everything according to the pattern I gave you. I mean, he's telling him how many buttonholes and how much stitching and what color cloth. And he's a God of structure and he's a God of order. He's a God of design. And when he's going to feed 5,000 people, he says, have the people sit in groups of this many. I mean, why not just say, have them sit in groups? Why does it matter what number of people are in the group that they need to sit down? Maybe he is a God of order. Maybe these aren't business principles. Maybe business people are actually doing biblical principles. Maybe that's why they're prospering. Because they're actually doing biblical principles and they don't even know it. John Maxwell is a genius. He's been teaching the Bible to people for years, only they don't know it's the Bible. And they've been applying it. And then all of a sudden at the end of his teaching, he says, oh, and by the way, this is the Bible. And some of them are stunned. They thought the Bible was some archaic book that just tried to restrict you. They didn't know it actually helped prosper your business. There's actually a right way to do this stuff. See, the church has to be ready 
to reach the culture we live in. And some of us have no idea what our culture's like because we're too busy looking at it from the 30,000-foot view. And you and I need to come down here. We don't need to do what they're doing, but we need to be where they are. I want you to stand with me. It's 1130. I could give an altar call and I could pray for us all to receive an infusion of compassion, but that's not going to work. And so what I've tried to do today, the best I know how, is to articulate the vision God has put in our hearts as leaders for our church and for our city. And my prayer is that when you walk out these doors that you will never be the same again. That you're going to start noticing people in ditches where you used to just walk by on the other side. And I pray that some days you're just going to be sitting at your desk and you're going to be in tears and you don't even understand why your heart is breaking. I had one of the greatest comments I could have gotten recently. Someone said, you know, I'm, I'm on a plane and I'm reading the last chapter in the book Unoffendable and tears are streaming down my face and I feel like a fool. Good. Because <laughs> I've been there. I read the, the book by Kay Warren, Dangerous Surrender, where she talks about how God broke her heart for the children in Africa who were dying of AIDS and how she could no longer sit by and do nothing while they passed away. And how she had to step into the fight. And I read that on a plane and the woman next to me probably thought I was crazy. But see, I just don't want my heart to break anymore. I want my life to change. I need my heart to keep breaking or my life will never change. So that's my prayer for us today. And so Father, here we are right now. Every single one of us in this room, every member, every partner of Restoration Church. We've read your word today. We see it. We hear it. The heart you have for people. The heart you have for the broken, the poor, the blind, the needy, the lame, those that can't help themselves. And God, we want your heart. Today we repent for every time we've walked by on the other side of the road. For every time we've tried to justify ourselves or find that loophole so we don't have to serve that person that we really don't want to serve or that person we really don't want to go to. Holy Spirit, begin to break our hearts like never before. Don't let us live the same. We don't want to live the same. We don't want to live the same anymore. We don't want to live the same anymore. Help us to see the things that we haven't been seeing. Help us to hear the things that we haven't been hearing. When we're in a conversation with our coworkers, help us not to be fixated on the four-letter words, but help us to be fixated on the pain in their hearts. Help us to look beyond the things that cause us offense and to begin to start seeing the needs in their lives and how we can be a part of raising the water level in their life. Give us compassion for those that are broken in this city. Give us vision. God, haunt us in our dreams compel us to make your love available to everyone in this city and the surrounding area. May your kingdom be, be done. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in all of our lives today, just as it's done in heaven. So Holy Spirit, put these truths deep in our hearts today. 
Help them to transform our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to spend some time in prayer, our altars are always open. If you haven't been prayed for and you want to be prayed for, we always have a prayer team here in the front. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you. But uh, I'd encourage you to make sure you stop by your mailbox today and pick up your form if you haven't yet. And uh, begin, begin to pray through that this week and uh, bring them back by June the 16th. God bless you as you go.